41 years ago this month, Bruce Springsteen released his sixth studio album, Nebraska. He had been riding a wave of popularity and success with the E Street Band. Their previous album, The River, had spent weeks at the top of the charts and included the hit song Hungry Heart, a big rock track with a full band sound and stadium energy. But Nebraska was an entirely different animal. Compared to the river, it was a radical departure. In fact, compared to almost any record by a contemporary pop act ever, it was unusual. Springsteen recorded much of the album on one winter night, sitting on the edge of a bed in a rented house in New Jersey, playing acoustic guitar and singing, adding a few additional little elements using a four-track cassette recorder. The four-track cassette recorder was the gateway machine for musicians, recording enthusiasts, garage bands, songwriters, and budding producers of a certain generation. It was cheap enough for most people to have, and it expanded the potential of what kind of recording was possible at home. But it was never really intended to be used as a professional recording machine. It was for demos, ideas, or people starting out. Springsteen was a rock star, but he used it for his demos, too. It's just that his demos turned out to have magic in them. Ultimately, there would be no way for him to replace or re-record what was on that demo. And Bruce decided to release it as the album Nebraska. The songs deal with ordinary, down-on-their-luck, blue-collar characters who face a challenge or a turning point in their lives. The songs also address the subject of outsiders, criminals, and mass murderers with little hope for the future, or no future at all, as in the title track, where the main character is sentenced to death in the electric chair. It's intense stuff. They declared me I'm fit to live Set into that great void my soul be heard You want to know why I did what I did Sir, I guess it's just a meanness In this world The album would go on to have a lasting influence, inspire other works of art, including movies and books and other records, and Springsteen would later muse that Nebraska may be his best album. Four decades later, the story of Nebraska continues to be an object of fascination. Among those who obsessed over it from the very beginning was the musician and writer Warren Zanes. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. Warren Zanes had been on his own incredibly complex journey before becoming the highly respected music critic, writer, and teacher that he is today. He joined his brother Dan's band, the Del Fuegos, when he was only 17. The band toured with ZZ Top, Tom Petty, and the Heartbreakers in excess and others during the time Warren was in the band, and also famously licensed one of their songs for a commercial, which led to some serious blowback at the time. That's another story, but it does really illustrate how far we've come since the 80s when bands were berated for selling their songs to brands rather than celebrated for their successes. Anyway, Warren went on to build a career as an academic, a writer, including his best-selling biography of Tom Petty. He's an educator, he's the former Vice President of Education and Public Programs for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum, and he now teaches at New York University. He's a Grammy-nominated documentary producer and a musical artist who's released multiple albums under his own name, most recently, The Collected Warren Zane. What are those golden days? I heard they don't want you In the world you made So much for all the rage 
People get burned out even on the humble face. But he carried his fascination with Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska from the time he was a kid at boarding school back in 1982, wondering why that record made him feel the way it did. He recently published the book Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. Warren and I spoke about his own personal journey, his thoughts on stardom, work, the Beach Boys, family, addiction, songwriting, betrayal, college towns, fatherhood, Taylor Swift, working with machines, the kinks, Booker T and the MGs, drummers, artificial intelligence, Joseph Campbell, and of course, Nebraska. So get ready because it goes a lot of places. Third-story.com is the place to go to sign up, subscribe, and check the archive. Hundreds of deep-diving conversations like this one, including episodes with other songwriters like Peter Himmelman and Ron Sexsmith, non-fiction writers like David Marinus and Ratso Sloman, songwriters-turned-writers like Mike Errico and Ari Herstand, and Warren's own brother Dan Zanes. Then it's patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast to turn yourself from a listener into a supporter. And finally, The Third Story is made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org slash studios to find out more about all their award-winning content. Here's me and Warren Zanes talking it down. Hey, Warren. Hey there. How you doing? Good, how are you? Good. Hey, are you getting a good enough audio level? Because I had, for another thing, I had to switch stuff yesterday. It seems okay. You The way I have you routed, you're coming through like a little universal audio mixer, and I've got some control over it. So this is what I was going to ask you to start with, and you made reference to it right away, that you're in a cycle right now. You were doing a Zoom yesterday. You know, you've been making the rounds talking about your new book. Yeah, which is, there's a kind of series of things that take place. You finish the book. And then you lose contact with it during the you know, the design, during the printing process. And then if you do your own audio book, you get all the way back in touch with it by being a reader. And then you go into a promotion phase. And these days, it's more podcasts than anything. And... I think that process deepens your understanding of what you just did if you really make yourself available to it. So I like all these phases, frankly. So what is your understanding of what you just did, given that that's the phase that you're in right now? I mean, how are you viewing this work? It it seems to me, writing a book like this, I mean, I don't know when the first idea came to you, but by the time you chased Springsteen down, had his blessing, did all the research, wrote the thing, COVID interrupted you, it derailed some of the process, then you have to put it out. What's your relationship with the project like right now? Well, not to be overly mystical, but I think uh, all of this stuff happens when it should. And I think, you know, Bruce Springsteen in his life at the time of making Nebraska was just lost in the forest of it all Mm -hmm. and he started getting help you know between nebraska and born in the usa he started in on what i think is a long journey of you know therapy self-discovery not that he wasn't already deep in it obviously you know you you can't make albums like he was making without being involved in self-discovery. But I think he took it to the next level and started addressing 
some childhood pain that was going to take him down if he didn't address it. So for me in writing this, I think it was a bit of a wake up call that I needed to do something like that myself. And I I think a lot of us do. And, you know, I come from, oof, you know, what do I come from? (laughs) You know, my, my father was out of the picture by the time I was two. He married either five or six times had kids and a bunch of those marriages. And each time he was finished a marriage, he never looked back, you know? So I only met him, uh, you know, when I came into consciousness at whatever age that happens, uh, you know, I can count on two hands the number of times I met him. And that's one story. And then, then I had the mother who was there, who we never really looked that closely at. She's still alive. And we never really, really looked closely at it because it was, there was this good bad dichotomy father abandon us mm. bad mother still there good and the truth is the story of the home life with my mother was very complicated you know she was the i i have told the story of like when i got my copy of nebraska in 1982 it was as i was going back to boarding school where i was a scholarship student and you know i was going with a big bag of pot that my mother grew Ah. and, you know, I would call her periodically when she visited me, I made sure she took me to a liquor store and I was a high school kid. And we just didn't think there was anything uh, wrong with this picture. So a project like Nebraska is you're looking at someone who's addressing early childhood issues. And in his case, really early childhood trauma, it, it, it just made me think like I, I want to live the, the better life myself that you get when you self-investigate with real support. And I have that support. I think I just started using it in a deeper way. Man, this is so interesting because when I think about your trajectory, one piece of the family dynamic that you didn't just speak to, but which I think was very impactful for you was the dynamic with your brother, which was your way out of the house at first. Yeah. So, you know, my brother asked me to join his band when I was 17 and I was still at boarding school. And I said, yes, you know, it was a great thing because I hadn't filled out any college applications and this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a part of his story. And the complicated thing among the complicated things was that, you know, in that household growing up, he was the oldest male. Yeah. And my mother did a thing that I think single parents sometimes do. It's like single moms, like fly the eldest up into the position of male head of household at too young an age. And We all kind of signed off on that, I think. And so in joining his band, I was both joining my brother's band and I was joining this more than brother's band. I'm not going to say father's, but it was more than brother. And um, I think I made that dangerous overinvestment. You know, it was his band and I wanted to be a part of it, but I also wanted to be validated by that brother. And he was on his own trip. You know, he really wasn't there 
to take care of me. I think he thought taking care of me was giving me a spot in his band, but I wanted more than that. I wanted fulfillment. I wanted a creative life. I wanted to find my voice. All the things that developmentally we really want to do in the late teens and early 20s. And instead, I went into his world and my options were seriously limited. And a lot of my growth, I think, stopped. Yeah. When I finally, when it came to a head and it was like, look, you got to cut me in at a higher creative level. I know I'm capable and I think you know I'm capable. And he said, you got to go form your own band. It was a kind of betrayal that uh, just took me down to my knees. And, you know, for years I grappled with it. And when I say years, I probably mean decades. (laughs) And, you know, we've come around, um, we've done some work and we've, you know, but it, but it was hard stuff, you know, and not to tie everything to Nebraska. But when I listen to a song like Highway Patrolman, which some days is my favorite song on Nebraska, it shifts. But some days it is. And I see that relationship between those brothers. I go. It makes me feel like I never had that. And like that act of love at the end of Highway patrolman when the the brother who represents the law kind of suspends his relationship to the law to release his brother that act of love is so moving to me that wasn't our story me and frankie laughing and drinking nothing feels better than blood on blood taking turns dancing with marie as a band plays night of the Johnstown flood I catch him when he streams Like any brother would Man turns his back on his family But he just ain't no good Man, it, it is so deep that you're bringing this up because as I listened to Nebraska today, I thought, and I heard that, I thought... I wonder if the brotherly dynamic here was at play for Warren early on. Even though your story isn't the same, it is the complicated story of brothers. In the same way, I I just read an article uh, interview with you and your brother from earlier this summer before you were going to play a gig, and I learned that the Beach Boys is a kind of common language between the two of you. Well, why? I mean, obviously, it's iconic music, but it's also another iconic brother band. Totally. But, but a wildly imbalanced mm-hmm. brother band. You know, I, I think in a way, though, Ray Davies and the Kinks, though he is clearly the leader and very, you know, very clearly viewed as the artistic center of the Kinks, Dave Davies got out there and, you know, death of a clown. Uh, you know, like there were moments where Dave Davies got to really be something. And um, in the Beach Boys, you know, you've got Brian as the genius at the center. And I think sometimes it overshadowed uh, Carl's gifts and like even Dennis, you know, and it's funny that I hadn't actually thought of it the way you're describing it. But my, my brother and I have talked about this, like, you know, Carl hmm. deserved more. 
and Dennis doesn't get his due as a drummer. But we didn't have that self-reflective, hey, we're brothers from a band talking about brothers in a band. Something's going on here. We like we didn't, it's we that, didn't take that step. It's that thing where you're not you're talking about more than what you're talking about. You know, you're talking about this, but you're also saying something else when you're talking about it. Human existence would be far less interesting if we weren't always talking about something other than what we're talking about. That's right. If Freud hadn't come along when he did, Freud would need to be invented so that he could <laughs> help us to understand that there are layers to everything. But I get, but I, on this brother theme, I just got to say, the, one of the amazing things about Bruce Springsteen, and I think this is a testament to his power of intuition, is he tells that incredible brother story. Yeah. He's not a brother. Yeah. But he is a guy who was kind of raised in bands with a lot of brotherhood in bands. The pain of brotherhood is in bands. Well, so that's the other thread that runs through this story, right? That Bruce is finding himself in Nebraska dealing with who he is independent of his brothers in his band and actually having to come to terms with the idea that he has to do this thing alone, which again does reach back into a narrative that you started to lay out about your own life, that your brother said, you have, you want to do this, you have to do this alone, that somehow confronting who you are independent of your band is a number, another common thread. Well, it's interesting, you know, when you begin to think of like Joseph Campbell, Hero's Journey, um, initiation rites across cultures, Miyazaki's Kiki's Delivery Service, if you're into Miyazaki's movies, that sending the late adolescent out into the world alone so that they can return as an adult is crucial. But I just think there's there are moorings that that late adolescent has. They Things have been modeled for them. Mm-hmm. They're going out alone, but they're not going out without resources. I think I came out of a household where there wasn't a whole lot modeled for me. Yeah. Sent out alone, I was without resources. And, you know, a lot of that's come late. A lot of it has had to be a conscious process of, and again, this is why I respond to what Bruce was going through with Nebraska. It's like getting to that point where you're out there alone. It's like, whoa, I need some support that I may not have gotten earlier. And it's oddly my responsibility to myself as an adult to get the help I need that ideally would have come sooner but didn't. And I'm going to find a way without blaming the people who did their best of getting the support I need and becoming the adult I want to be. You know, this this is like super deep stuff. So you know, you set out to write about an album because you admired it for its defiance, for its refusal to adhere to any of the dictates of the marketplace. And then you come away going, oh, shit, this is about an adult making up for what they didn't get, doing it without blame. And it just happened that along the way, he wrote this amazing collection of songs that reflect all this in different ways, not explicit ways. 
I'm really actually interested in how your own journey kind of aligns with this. And it's interesting that, you know, you started out by saying it took you a long time to recognize that there were certain resources that you needed in order to find, you know, become the adult that you wanted to be. And because the first thing that you do is you do turn to, it seems to me after you left the band, that the, the nearest kind of support you could find, which was a kind of institutional support in academia, you got really into telling other people's stories and became the kind of consummate student. Not right away. The first move was, I'm going to show my brother. And so I'm, I went, I kind of hibernated with an Atari 8-track recorder, which is, you know, one of the legendary half-inch recorders. Mm-hmm. This is not cassette recording. It was somewhere between, I think the first Eurythmics record was made mm-hmm. on an Atari 8-track half-inch. And that, that's somewhere between consumer and commercial, you know. So I got a board. I got that machine and I set up a room at my mother's house and went back to New Hampshire. I remember like this is an old old farmhouse and I was so clueless. <laughs> I went I took a saw and I cut little corners out of the doors in this old house <laughs> so that I could run cables through. <laughs> you know, I didn't think you ask about these yeah, things. Right. I treated this door like it was a piece of lumber out in our barn. That's the kind of like <laughs> absence of resources I'm describing. But anyway, I created this kind of woodshed environment and made it my business to learn the art of, you know, learn the art without a teacher, again, of turning songs into recordings. You know, I thought you wrote songs and that was kind of the end of it. And what being with a machine taught me was, no, 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 no. A song could become an infinite number of recordings. Mm. And there's, you get that song, you get those lyrics, you get your melodies, you get, you know, some idea in your head of arrangement. And you're still miles from a recording. And being alone in a room, I learned so much. You know, I'd, we'd been with the producer, Mitchell Froome, for three records. And, and we did, I think we all watched him and we learned a lot. So I got those resources. They're up in my head. I'm in this room with my mother's. I'm going to show my brother. And so I started making these tapes and I ended up making demo tapes. And I sent one to Mitchell Froome. Oddly enough, I sent one to Nils Lofgren. Hmm not through any Springsteen connection, through something outside of that. And then one to T-Bone Walk, who uh, passed away several years ago. It was, uh, you know, through a friend. I sent those three people, I don't know how many songs were on this demo tape, and they all responded favorably. And T-Bone called my mother's house in the middle of the night and said, he's sitting on a gold mine. And I'm a staff producer at CBS and tell them not to do anything. And that's exactly the wrong thing to do. Now, I don't think I was sitting on a gold mine. And I don't think he really thought I was sitting on a gold mine. He was saying there are good songs here. And I think they were good songs. But my what I did was I didn't do anything. Hmm. That's right when you should be working harder than ever. I was like, okay, 
I got a producer. He just made Hall and Oates records. Um, he knows how to turn songs into recordings at the highest level. Uh, he just had hits. He's a staff producer. I'm just going to smoke a bunch of pot and wait. And that's kind of what I did. And I waited. And then what I did next was I waited more. And then what I did next was waited more. And I think T-Bone saw somebody who wasn't doing anything on his own. And you got to be like, you got to want it. And I think I wanted somebody else to do it. I had something still to learn. And um, that episode took place before I went back to school. And I only went back to school because a girl was uh, getting ready to dump me. And I'd never been dumped. And I was really scared. You know, if you come from abandonment, you are really scared when it looks like somebody's getting ready to leave. Mm. And I'm asking her, how do I stay in this relationship? And she said, you got all your eggs in one basket. Like you diversify. And the way you diversify is you go to college. And I walked down the street to Loyola University and I said, can I just take a couple classes and not apply? And they they let me. And then I just never left. So I have a PhD, but never applied to undergrad. I was trying to figure that out as I read your bio, because I see you've got two master's degrees and a PhD. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you do that? You do that by just going at that time. I don't think you could do this now. Just go into that admissions office, say, hey, I graduated from Phillips Andover Academy, and I just want to take two summer classes, and then I promise I'll be out of your way. And they let me in. And I, and I didn't leave until I had a PhD. You know, I went one school to the next, to the next. And Before I ask you about your school career, those songs, those goldmine songs that you sat on and did nothing with, did those eventually turn into your first record? Nope, none of them, none of them. I'm, I'm not even sure I could find them. I'm not a good archivist, but I'll, I'll say two different bands asked, on the strength of that tape, two different bands asked me to join. Mm. And I was just so, I was so up in my head. I was both cocky and wildly insecure. And <laughs> I'm like, join your band? I'm way above you. I'm also way below you, but that's just an internal dialogue. <laughs> uh, but I'm like, no, I'm not joining your band. Like I'm, I'm out to like, I'm out to dethrone my brother. And it's <laughs> like, he wasn't actually on a throne. It was just this, there were so many shenanigans at work. I was just, I was out to make a mess and no one was going to stop me. So one of your graduate degrees is from the University of Wisconsin. Is that right? Yeah. So I went Loyola University for my BA, first master's University of Wisconsin, Madison, second master's University of Rochester, PhD University of Rochester. When were you in Madison? I am terrible with years, but, you know, like uh, early 90s. Yeah. You know, a great college town is a great place. Uh, I, like when I think of my own sons and where would I like to raise them? I'm not in a college town. That's the one thing. If I, if I could choose, I'd go to a college town. But I remember, you know, the lake where Otis Redding's plane went down sure. is, of course, there. I remember before there was snow, but the, the lakes had frozen, I would get my skates and I would go out skating. Now, this is like inadvisable stuff, because if anything happened, you're just kind of out there on the ice. Yep. Um, 
I would go out by myself in the middle of the night and go skating. And it was like one of the greatest feelings ever. And, you know, so I think fondly of that time, but I, but I was also, I needed something that didn't belong to my brother yeah. where I could go do some becoming and you know, college campuses are amazing places for that process. I think that's really what they're there for. I think they're really fucked up places right now. I hope that there's some kind of internal repair to it because when college works and it did work for me, it's this remarkable place of becoming. And, you know, I, I came out the other side with some, you know, with some new abilities with some more organized talents mm. with a sense for what I might be able to do in the world. You know, it was all really good, but, but then I happened to get a record deal right as I'm working on my PhD. So from that point forward, I was, I was neither here nor there. And I, you know, I, it was easier to do the becoming on college campuses mm. than in music. But I mean, despite all that, you somehow managed to make a bunch of really strong records and and keep writing songs and forge a path as an artist. I mean, it sounds like in spite of all your efforts, it still happened. I feel really fortunate. You know, right before I got on to talk with you, I was, you know, writing a song that the, the poet Paul Muldoon wrote lyrics for. And I play in his band that I have for about six years now. Yeah, I love doing it. If I if I were to, you know, personally, if I were to look at the things I've done in my life and say, here's the stuff that I think I'm best at, some days I think it might be songwriting. It's not how people think of me. I haven't gone out and actively pursued that for years, but I I think I do it well. And, I, you know, I listen back and I'm proud of what I've done. Um and and really, I, I'm not looking for an audience at this age. I'm just glad I still get to do it. It really helps me in the writing projects, when I work in documentary. fact that I've had that experience, again, of turning songs into recordings, it's a very complicated, many-headed experience. And I'm because I've gone through it, failed at it, felt like I succeeded at it, understand the analog to digital turn to a pretty good degree. Uh, that all helps me sit and talk with, you know, musicians who write songs and make records. Is there a flip side to it where, I mean, you have intimately, you know, experienced the process of Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, you, you've spent time with these iconic, legendary top of the mountain songwriters when it's time for you then to go and sit down and write your own song does that empower you or does it limit you because you're in your head about them or yeah no i think they're not in my head but the, but i definitely there's no way you can talk to people like that and not get better hmm. at the art that you're talking about like i honestly feel i don't know if anyone would agree with me I felt like I became a better drummer by virtue of talking about drums. I think talking about drums 
and I don't play drums that much, but when I do talking about drums made me stop playing fills. Yeah. Because I, you know, I, I understood how much the, the drummer could get in the way of the song and how unnecessary most drum fills are, you know, maybe I'm exaggerating, but it, it felt like 50% of the conversations that I have with Tom Petty and we had many were about drummers. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of talk about drummers and I just came out the other side thinking about drums and I sat down on a kit and I behaved differently. Yeah. When you talk with artists about songwriting, inevitably it's going to affect you when you sit down. They're not going to be in your head, but those conversations leave this residue that when you hit some impasse of like, you know, what do I do to make this line sing a little better? Yeah. What do I do to make this narrative make more sense? It's going to come into play in your head. I'm doing a series of books with Garth Brooks, helping him. We're on our sixth book. I've learned a tremendous amount about songwriting from him. And, you know, you can learn from country. And then Garth is himself a real, he's not, he's a student and a practitioner. You know, so when he talks, about what makes a Merle Haggard song work or, you know, what makes a particular George Jones 70s recording magic in his view, you're learning something uh, because he's studied so rigorously himself and turned it into this remarkable practice. Yeah, no, I've been, I've been lucky to, to have pretty deep conversations about making the stuff with people who've operated at a level that I'll never even get close to. And it makes going back in the studio slightly altered. Part of your life is spent interacting with these people that are at what you describe as a, a higher level than you. And then another part of your life is spent teaching. And I don't mean to imply that your students are at a lower level <laughs> than you, but that you that you then become the one that has something to impart. So where does that play into your whole kind of, you know, the, well, the, the puzzle? Yeah, nobody that I've met who has a long career, and this includes the artists that we just talked about, um, no one I met who's had a long career is not also a, a serious fan. Mm -hmm. When Tom Petty talked about Elvis, when Bruce Springsteen talked about Alan Vega's group Suicide, when, when Garth talks about George Strait, they're talking as serious fans. I'm also a fan. Hmm. My students are fans. So there you've got the common thread. You know, so when I go into the classroom, I do not bury the fact that I'm a fan. Hmm. I I expose it and I talk about the fact that sometimes it's going to skew my thinking, but I'm still going to aim for objectivity because I'm ultimately, you know, I try to say to the students, like, I'm not here to give you my opinion. It's going to come out. Hmm. I can't help that. I'm a fan, you know, but what I really like, I want to go for historical significance. So there, you know, our, like, our class on Britney Spears is not, a particularly good class because I'm a Britney Spears fan. I totally respect that moment. I think you can't tell the story of popular music without her. 
I am having a good class around Britney Spears because I think she's got this historical significance. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes what happens is I go in focused on historical significance. And then I drive home from the class listening to Britney Spears going, damn, I love that song. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what's interesting is we, at various points in our lives, define ourselves according to what we are fans of and that we tell ourselves the story. It's the story that we tell those around us, too. I like this. That's who I am. But we're very malleable also, and we can be convinced if we like the story, maybe we can be convinced that the art is worth listening to also or that we like the, we like the product. Yeah. I mean, it's there are different ages, Yeah, obviously. Like, but... When you look at like age 12 to 18, your taste choices uh, relate to your identity in a way that's particularly deep. And you're going to use that to identify friendships, sometimes romantic relationships. It just matters in this other way. I do think it changes over time. You know, I could have a good relationship with my neighbor and maybe even go have coffee with my neighbor, even if they listen to, let's say fish. I'm just going to go for an easy one that, you know, um, won't get me in any trouble. (laughs) I don't think. And I, and I actually, Trey from fish went out with Tom Petty. So there's a connection. Oh, funny. Uh, But if I was 16, I might weigh things differently. You know, but that's, I think, because an identity is in formation. How old are your sons? 18 and 20. In the the acknowledgments of your book, it seems very clear that they were really a significant part of your process and in general are a significant part of your, I mean, not just a personal relationship that you have with them, but that you engage with them about your work. I, you know, it kind of doesn't make sense that, and I, and I have a lot of gratitude for this. Parenting came pretty naturally. And I don't know why, because I was not parented by my father. But these guys came along and for whatever reason, it was, I didn't, I wasn't looking for the manual. I just really liked being with them. And they're different from me. But we have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of love there. And then there's a lot of just shared interests. And we're curious about the way the, the way we see the world differently and the, just the way we see the world. And so they're, they're a big part of everything. You know, I kind of stopped making them listen to stuff I thought they should listen to pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And then it became all musical theater. Like if they were in the car, it was musical theater. And, you know, I just took a long ride with Piero the other day. Piero's the 18-year-old. And they know that I love Taylor Swift's folklore record. You know, that was like my record that year. Vintage tea, brand new phone, high heels on, cobblestones. When you are young, they assume you know nothing. I thought there's a lot of really great production on it. Sequence smile, black lipstick, sensual politics. When you are young, they assume you know nothing. 
uh, really spare production, like Booker T and the MGs, Green Onions is like, that's the thing everybody should look at, I think, to see how little you need. Taylor Swift, it sounded like there were very few elements and and very complete recordings. And I'm sure there were many more events in in those productions than you're hearing on that listener level. I'm sure they're very complicated, but they had this simplicity, this spare quality. But we were taking this long drive and then Piero started guiding me into his Taylor Swift and taking me by record by record. And look, I came out going, I think I understand that the road to Taylor Swift's folklore was from Lover. Mm. And I was really interested in the production on that. And I, th- I think she's also, as a songwriter, she has a real gift for the detail. Like she'll give you that, that small detail that allows you to create the rest of the room around it. I I really see her songs and I think it's because she has a gift for the detail. People dream high in the quiet of the night, you know that I cut it. Bad, bad boy, shiny toy with a price, you know that I bought it. Killing me slow, out the window. I'm always waiting for you to be waiting below. Devils roll the dice, angels roll their eyes. This year, so many songwriters of all different backgrounds that I know are talking about Taylor Swift. I mean, it's like, I don't actually remember another, I mean, I suppose maybe at some point it would have been Bruce or something, like that people would be talking about everybody is, but not even, that would be confronting such a pop act, you know, such a mainstream popular act. Even Michael Jackson, I don't think we talked about him as a songwriter as such. We talked about him as an entertainer. We talked him about, about him as a performer and a dancer and, a, you know, and all these things, but not as a songwriter. And Taylor Swift, Ben, we are all confronting Taylor Swift, anybody that's uh, making music. I think one of the reasons is that we're in the wake of Me Too and in a time of, you know, where more people are experiencing themselves or in their inner circle, gender fluidity. I think people were more ready than ever to have this empowered young woman say some things that maybe 10 years before, I don't know. So there's there's some things that were allowed out that it was high time. And I hope that, you know, what happens there, like, continues to happen more with race but i but i think i think we were thinking about the young woman's point of view collectively with a little more sophistication mm-hmm. than we have previously that would be my theory you know you said this thing about folklore in particular where you assume that there are more moves happening behind the scenes that we're not hearing but it adds up to a very spare sounding record 
As I listened to Nebraska before I talked to you today, I had the opposite experience. I felt like there are elements happening, and maybe because of the sort of mush of the cassette sound or whatever, I can't always tell how many guitar parts I'm hearing. Knowing how it was made, I know that there's probably only one guitar and one voice and one overdub, but it sort of mushed into something that sounded to me like more than it was. That's interesting. The echoplex and how much of that yeah. del- that kind of delay is he- putting on to it I-, I think it creates sounds from sounds there's there's a lot of that been into that room with him and i i think she's i don't know like when you're sitting in a studio you're thinking and let's say you're putting down you're out let's say you're out in the main room yeah and you're um putting down a guitar part and you're using an amp you, you're probably thinking about the sound of like your pants on the chair and your sleeve and if you're touching the strings when you don't mean to be, uh, this heightened consciousness, when you're just laying down demos in your bedroom, you're letting all kinds of sounds happen that you in a studio would be more conscious of. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of that, you know, sound of the room, the body in space, the body on the bed. Yeah. And it's it gives us the room in ways beyond, you know, the sound reflecting off the walls, you know, there's a lot of room there. Yeah. Just as somebody who makes recordings, as you describe your own journey, that relationship with the machinery, you know, my journey starts with a four track cassette tape machine. And as soon as I could get eight tracks, I got eight. And as soon as I could get digital, I got digital. And as soon as I could get a better mic, I did thinking somehow that each of those tools was going to lead me to write a better song or have a better product or do something more pro. If only I had these two new tools. And there was something that just hit me in the heart when I saw, oh my God, I mean, this was a toy. This thing was made essentially on a four-track cassette machine. That's what he did this on. It just really moved me. Yeah, I mean, I find it sends such a clear message that you don't need to let the technology be the the thing that keeps you from creating. Um, that it's and and now we we see it through the lens of everybody's got one on their computer. We know that. Yeah. Nothing really needs to stop you. That's an anti as an artist at his level. It's just at his first number one album. He's doing that. Yeah. That's super moving. I find like what gets me emotionally, like in movies, if, if a person does something creatively and they are heard, it always mm. gets me. And Nebraska 
though this artist just had their first number one record, they did something that was so unexpected. I don't think it was defiant. I saw it as defiant. I saw this punk rock spirit. I don't think it was that. I mean, I really think he was just making demos in his room and he released some stuff from himself that he hadn't released before. And the world heard it, you know, and we're still hearing it. Mm -hmm. like, that part is super moving to me. And, you know, Bruce Springsteen is way up there, far from us where he's operating. And yet he's not. And so, you, you know, it sounds to me like you took it at the, the, the how he's closer to us than we think, you know, way. Because he is. He's both things. Yeah. But the closer to us is this message of like, don't stop writing because you're hurting. Mm. Don't stop writing because you think the quality is not good enough. Really, don't stop writing. You know, it, like there are some things we can only get through. Once you learn that it's that it's easier to write a song than anyone thinks, mm -hmm. <laughs> once you get to that, that's something that I do encourage my sons to do. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm not sitting and saying we do the eruption solo again. Um, but I am saying like, I want you to learn to write songs so that you have that place to go when you need it most. That's all I ask. I don't want, I don't care if you make records. I don't care hmm. if you play it for anybody. I just want it to be a place you can go because there is healing there. There is comfort there. And there's information about who you are there. So learn how to get there. And it can be a place you can go throughout your entire life. And you never have to make a record. You know, I want them to know that. But the only way you can really get it is experientially, you know, is to like that girl yeah. who doesn't see me, who I long for so much. I can, in a song, have an experience with her that will not get her, mm. not make all the longing go away, but there's some symbolic thing that takes place that I think makes you stronger as a person in the world. I think it makes you a better person in the world, frankly. I'm a big believer in songwriting. Yeah, no, I hear you. I And it's funny, I've said the same thing to my, she's only 12, but my daughter, when she's had social drama, I've said, this is gonna be great for the songs. This is good songwriting material. You just hold yeah. this, use it. My younger son has epilepsy and it's really hard to, it's hard. You know, we have moments where we just sit and we'll say, fuck epilepsy. Yeah. But the one thing that like kind of, that, that I feel like he hears more. And, and I think about this just in relation to my own addiction and recovery is um, I say, you're going to help somebody. Yeah. I said like, imagine if today some guy three, four years older than you walked into your world and said, I've got epilepsy too. And, and here's how it made me feel. And here's what I did. And here's where I didn't have anything I could do. And I felt hopeless. 
And here's how the hopelessness got better. Yeah. Like I said, how would you feel? Bureau said, that would be amazing. And I was like, so if that person doesn't appear, just go be that for some other kid. What a thing. And he'll hear that. Yeah. He he does write songs more than his older brother, you know, yeah. and he takes this stuff. But anyway, now I'm thinking about my children. Well, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about them too before we talked because I read what you wrote about them in the in the back of your book, and I was also thinking, I wonder how old they are because I knew you were 17 or 18 when you joined the Del Fuegos, and I was just guessing that they're probably around that age, and and in fact, one of them is older than you were when you joined the Del Fuegos. Yeah, man, like joined the Del Fuegos and started trying to find the Coke dealers. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I, God I, forbid they take that path. I read that also that you said that there was a, you reached a point in the band where you just wouldn't walk on stage unless you were messed up. Like you, you just couldn't, oh, yeah. couldn't get on stage without it. Yeah. Couldn't get out of the dressing room. You know, it was like, but the, you know, I come from an alcoholic family tree I'll be 30 years clean and sober in December. You know, that's a long time. Yeah. You know, so I'm I'm past the half my life point. Yeah. Which is pretty wild. That doesn't mean the problems go away. I'm still a person who found an answer in alcohol and drugs. You know, so that person, like, you know, it could be far less damaging and it might just be an excess of Twizzlers. Sure. But- I'm going to probably go for the quick gratification if I can. And good nutrients are not the quick gratification nutrients. So, you know, what should we be doing? Writing a song, meditating, taking a walk. You know, this shit's all too slow for me. Yeah, so man, I but- struggle to be truly sober. But you are prolific, and it seems to me that maybe you channeled some of that into your work. I mean, you keep making stuff, and you keep doing stuff, and that, you know that may be the healthiest. I mean, I don't know what it's like to live your life, but that's a pretty healthy diversionary tactic is to put it in your work. You know, there's a there's a restlessness of mind and spirit uh, that is has been good at the office. If somebody comes to you and says that they love a song that you wrote or a record of yours— or they come to you and they say they love a book that you wrote. Does one of those resonate differently for you than the other? Maybe songs and records just because I hear less of that. Because it's it's not how I present in the world. But but I'd say they're about the same. And it's and it's really it's really nice. I try to respond when it happens because it's not so frequent that I can't. And um I you know, I try to engage and Nebraska has been really interesting because a lot of people do want to talk about, you know, you know that I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the Renaissance masterwork, Dante's Inferno. The first line is in the middle of my life, I found myself lost in a wood. That's a translation of it. And when he wrote it, he was around like he was, he was midlife. Yeah. I think a lot of people midlife find themselves lost in a wood. Nebraska is a story about a guy who was also a major figure in popular music who found himself lost in a wood. And Nebraska is the wood. You know, he gives it this name. He gives it this geographic name. It's not a geographic place. 
it's a place in here and in here, in the heart and the mind. But he gives it this geographic name. And the people I'm hearing from are people who were stranded in their own Nebraskas. Mm. And we're like, I've always loved this record. And I didn't know why until I read this book. Now, that to me is an incredibly validating response. Because it does, you know, what you ultimately want is to drive the person back to the recording that you're writing about. Sure. And so when they come to me and say, you know, your book helped me to understand my connection to this record. And I went back to it. And then they're listening differently. And, and that's, uh, that makes you want to write another book. You wrote a book about a record that was made 40 years ago. I mean, it didn't even come out in the clean 40-year anniversary. It came out in the 41st anniversary of the record or something, right? It came out in September of, of uh, 82, I think. So it's like we're just coming yeah. up on 41 years. You know, in the, in the sort of media cycle world that we live in, it's sort of like, well, why is this book getting written right now? And why is it coming out right now? And, and I mean, I think it's coming out right now because this is when you were able to write it for no other reason than that. I imagine the label was probably pretty happy to get to breathe some new life into this record and people are going to stream it more and you know all of that stuff but ultimately like there's there, there doesn't seem to be any commercial motivation behind this other than that you chose to do this right now and that's also kind of feels unusual it, there's something about it that doesn't feel particularly contemporary in the way that it's being rolled out here i want to tell you a story about something that happened a long time ago in a previous iteration yeah. of this person's career because i think it's still important yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell, like, when Bruce said, I think it still may be my best record, he gave me a lot to work with right there because he's out on the road, so people are thinking about Bruce. So that right there, one sentence, situates that book in the present. Yeah. I also think, you know, I wrote a New York Times op-ed that it doesn't say it explicitly, but everybody's talking about AI as if they know what they're talking about. I think AI has been with us for quite a while. Like we're starting to talk about it. That's good. But Nebraska's in some way like the anti-AI. You know, it, before Nebraska existed, there wasn't a Nebraska. Right. It could really only be that guy at that time. And maybe I should be far more worried about AI, but I feel like the things that I love the most in the world of art AI couldn't make, you know, they could retroactively fashion something that sounded like it, but in terms of like creating that unexpected thing that everybody goes, what did he just do? Like that's Nebraska. It's true. Although I'll tell you when I was reading in the book about mansion on the Hill and how he borrowed that title from a song that in its own way had borrowed from all this other language. The original song you talk about, the title came from one place, the melody was borrowed from somewhere else, I thought. That's the human version of what AI does. It absorbs a lot and then it recontextualizes. It makes something new out of what it has consumed. Yeah, except the new part. Hmm. It can only work from historical precedent. Yes. It can't imagine futures. AI cannot, but we can. It can't, yeah. So when when Bruce uses a Hank Williams title and inhabits it, it's so different. As I sit here alone in my cabin 
There's a place out on the edge of town, sir, rising above the factories and the fields. Ever since I was a child, I can remember that mansion on the hill. You know, so AI AI builds from existing materials but it can't not yet it can't i'm i'm like reaching for the word and i I feel like innovate is partial doesn't feel perfect Mm -hmm. but it, it can't do that maybe i should feel more threatened by ai but i'm so from the world of mistakes like, I feel like everything I've done is flawed. I remember with my petty biography being in the Denver airport and calling my agent and saying, I got to talk to you one-on-one. And I said, Sloan, I think this book is highly flawed. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a lot wrong with it. And he, rather than saying, no, man, no, he was like, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I haven't, I've had that feeling about everything, you know, and, and, and then the AI discourse, you know, builds up ahead of steam and I go, wow, all the stuff I was seeing as flaws is just where I couldn't stop being me and it's the good stuff. And, you know, I had to get a little older. I had to have a little more in the way of experience, but Nebraska is about that too. Like, Stop cleaning it up. Stop. Yeah. Right where you are, because that's who you are. And like, don't erase yourself from the picture. Right. Well, and and this is where we started, and it's a good place to bring it back around, which is the relationship that you personally have with this work that's ongoing. You know, you're at this particular stage in the cycle now where you're talking about it. You wrote it, then you got to read it for the audiobook, and now you get to talk about it. And now, maybe more than ever, figure out what are the teachings for you from this story. I mean, we're all going to take our own teachings from it, but I think that's a major one, right, is don't erase yourself from the picture. And interestingly, man, in your particular case, I think by telling other people's stories, it is a convenient place to hide sometimes, you know? And interestingly, this one, for whatever reason, you can't hide behind it. People seem interested in hearing, who are you, the guy that wrote this book, and why did you write this book? So you are sort of intrinsically tied to this one. Yeah, it's, you know, the other thing that I get to do is is book talks. Yeah. So that's different from me talking to you here. That's me doing a presentation where I don't go and just like read from the book. I tell stories about the making of the book. I tell, you know, I do some reading from it. And then I've been getting artists to play songs. So it's interspersed. I did a show with James Maddock Mm. and Laura Cantrell Mm. and Steve Earle. I did a show in Providence that had Ian from Deer Tick, Ted Leo, was in it and I'm doing one down in Nashville that we're going to shoot for PBS. And I think I can say this I think We're announcing like any day, but it's Lyle Lovett, Lumineers, Emmy Lou Harris, Noah Khan. Mm-hmm. And we may, we may have more, but that's like a huge thing for me. 
those events are like it's to your point that I, that I can't not bump into myself on this project. They're so emotional and they take me through so many points in my life and they're so, so rewarding. Yeah. It feels a little like a bloodletting. It gets, you know, like I just got to keep it together up there, but it's, you know, I've walked away from those gone. That is the most me I have felt in a public project more than playing music on a stage, mm. more than doing a book reading, more than teaching, more than doing an interview. I'm like, I've never felt so much of me activated. And it's like, it's such, I feel, I hate saying that because it feels like the kind of dime store, but man, I feel lucky when I do those events. I still can't believe those artists are coming to support me. Mm -hmm. How do you decide what the next thing is? I'm already at work on it and just, it's not announced yet. Um, sometimes the next thing comes fast. Sometimes it comes slowly. This one came super fast. And I'm also finishing up, you know, book six with Garth, uh, hmm. which, you know, I never do a Garth project and, and fail to learn a lot. Yeah. You know, it's been an amazing career to walk through with him. And he is the most hands-on of any artist I have ever met. The second we started working, and it was years ago, nobody else was calling. It was not management. It was Garth. And he's always first question, how are the boys? Hmm. I don't think everybody can do this. I think Garth can do it, and he does it. And it's been amazing for my family. Like My, my kids really, uh, really like him. You know, he, he's been really fun, inspiring interesting unexpected he, he we've just learned a lot from him you know it's, look all these guys i just i don't remain a student because it's like a moral position i remain a student because it'd be fucking stupid not to yeah because these are people that you can learn a lot from yeah so like keep your antennae up and you go away like whoa i never thought of that like that's why I like school in its best rendition is that feeling of like, I never would have thought of it that way. If it weren't for that experience with Garth, do you think you would have believed that you can be really massively successful and still stay true to that humility of starting I think out? Bruce Springsteen has it. I, th those Those two guys are probably the ones like, that and again i'm just i'm peripheral here yeah but that's my that's my sense is like these guys found a way to inhabit that space and i really think well it's rare it's rare i wouldn't want it you know i i remember coming home from a tom petty interview and just saying to my sons our lives are just the right size yeah i wonder how at a certain point, it's possible to continue to write if you give up your or lose your humility. You know what I mean? I don't know how. I think you need it in order to write. Yeah, you because you need to be able to identify with your characters. Yeah. 
Let me just say this, Warren Zanes, man, what a treat to talk to you. And thank you for all the work, not only this new book, which is such an inspiration to me and so many other people, but I want to say I'm a fan of your songwriting. I think you're a really wonderful artist as well, and I'm just glad to get to know you. Thank you so much for having the deep conversation with me. There he was, my friends, Warren Zanes. Sometimes the channel is open and the good stuff just comes pouring out. I'll be back in your headspace again before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. Maybe when the world gets weak Sagging at the edge of town Or leaning from a lack of sleep Talk gets cheap Beneath it you'll hear a sound Something that you just might keep This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.